It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along for this week's episode, Chapter 18 of The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by Edward J. Ruppelt. All right, folks, we are in the home stretch here. I just want to point out before we continue on that the original 1956 edition of this book only had the first 17 chapters. The 1960 edition added three extra chapters, starting with the one that I'm going to read today. Now, rumor has it that the Air Force actually made Ruppelt add these chapters, and they, they sort of debunk UFOs and say that it's all explainable. So it's kind of like he's going against some of the things he said previously. But we'll see here. So uh, anything in these chapters, take with a grain of salt. Maybe he was forced to say them. Maybe he was not. Well, we don't know for sure, because unfortunately, very shortly after this edition was published in 1960, Edward J. Ruppelt passed away of a heart attack. He was only 37 when he passed away. Here goes. Chapter 18. And they're still flying. Four years have passed since the first 17 chapters of this book were written. During this period, hundreds of unidentified flying objects have been seen and reported to the Air Force. Pilots, with thousands of hours of flying time, are still reporting them. Radar operators, experts in their field, are still tracking them, and crews on the missile test ranges are photographing them. UFOs are not just a fad. The Air Force's Project Blue Book is still very active. Not a week passes that one of the many teams of its nationwide investigation net is not in the field investigating a new UFO report. To pick up the history of the UFO, the best place to start is Cincinnati, Ohio, in the late summer of 1955. For some unknown reason, one of those mysterious factors of the UFO, reports from this Hamilton County city suddenly began to pick up. Mass hysteria, the old crutch, wasn't a factor because neither the press, the radio, nor TV was even mentioning the words flying saucer. The reports weren't much in terms of quality. Some lady would see a bobbing white light or a man putting his car away would see a star jump. These reports usually passed on to the Air Force through the Air Defense Command's Ground Observer Corps, merely went on the UFO plotting board as a statistic. But before long, in a matter of a week or two, the mass of reports began to draw some official attention because the Ground Observer Corps spotters themselves began to make UFO reports. At times during the middle of August, the telephone lines from the GOC observation posts in Hamilton County, Greater Cincinnati, to the Filter Center in Columbus would be jammed. Now even the most cynical Air Force types were begrudgingly raising their eyebrows, these GOC observers were about as close to experts as you can get. Many had spent hundreds of hours scanning the skies since the GOC went into the operation in 1952 to close the gaps in our radar net. Many held awards for meritous service. They weren't crackpots. But still, the cynics held out. This was really nothing new. The Project Blue Book files were full of similar incidents. In 1947, there had been a rash of reports from the Pacific Northwest. In 1948, there had been a similar outbreak at Edwards Air Force Base, the super-secret test center in the Mojave Desert of California. In 1949, the sightings centered in the Midwest. None had panned out to be anything. Then came the clincher. On the night of August 23rd, shortly before midnight, reports of a UFO began to come in from the Mount Healthy GOC observation post northwest of Cincinnati. Almost simultaneously, 
Air Defense Command radar picked up a target in that area. A minute or two later, the Forestville and Loveland GOC posts, also in Hamilton County, made sightings. Now, three UFOs described as brilliant white spheres, swinging in a pendulum-like motion, were on the ADC plotting boards, confirmed by radar. All pretext of ignoring the UFOs was dropped, and at 11.58 p.m., F-84s of the Ohio Air National Guard were scrambled. They were over Cincinnati at 12.10 a.m. and made contact. Boring in at 20,000 feet, at 100% power, they closed, but the UFOs left them as if they were standing still. The battle in the Cincinnati sector was on. Almost every night, more UFOs were reported by the GOC. Attempts were made to scramble interceptors, but there were no more radar contacts, and a jet interceptor without ground guidance is worthless. At the height of this activity, it was decided that more information was needed by the Air Defense Command, maybe from a mass of data something, some kind of clue, could be sifted out. The answer, establish a special UFO reporting post. The man to operate this post was tailor-made. On September 9, Major Hugh McKenzie of the Columbus Filter Center contacted Leonard H. Stringfield in Cincinnati. Stringfield, besides being a very public-minded citizen, was also known as a level-headed saucer expert Sooner or later, usually sooner, he heard about every UFO sighting in Hamilton County. He was given a code, Foxtrot Kilo 30 Blue, which provided him with an open telephone line to the ADC Filter Center in Columbus. He was in business, but he didn't have to build up a clientele. It was there. For the next few months, Stringfield did yeoman duty as Cincinnati's one-man UFO center by sifting out the wheat from the chaff and passing the wheat on to the Air Force. As he told me the other day, half his nights were spent in his backyard, clad in shorts and binoculars. Fortunately, his neighbors were broad-minded, and the UFOs picked relatively warm nights to appear. Most of the reports Stringfield received were duds. He lost track of the number. The green, red, blue, gold, and white. Discs, triangles, squares, and footballs which hovered, streaked, zigzagged, and jerked, turned out to be Venus, Jupiter, Arcturus, and an occasional jet. A fiery orange satellite which hovered for hours turned out to be the North Star viewed through a cheap telescope and the whole formation of spaceships were the Pleiades. Then it happened again. On the evening of March 23rd, Stringfield's telephone rang. It was Charles Denninger at the Mount Healthy GOC post. They had a UFO in sight off to the east. Could Stringfield see it? He grabbed his extension phone and ran outdoors. There, off to the east, were two large, low-flying lights. One of the lights was a glowing green and the other yellow. They were moving north. Airplane! This was Stringfield's first reaction, but during World War II, he had made the long trek up the Pacific with the famous 5th Air Force, and he immediately realized that if it was an airplane, it would have to be very close because of the large distance between the lights. And, as a clincher, no sound came through the still night. He dialed the long-distance operator and said the magic words. This is Foxtrot Kilo 3-0 Blue. Seconds later, he was talking to the duty sergeant at the Columbus Filter Center. A few more seconds, and the sergeant had his story. Another jet was scrambled, and this time Stringfield, via a radio telephone hookup to the airplane, gave the pilot a vector. 
Stringfield heard the jet closing in, but since it was a one-way circuit, he couldn't hear the pilot's comments. Once again, the UFO took off. This was a fitting climax for the Cincinnati flap. As suddenly as it began, it quit, and from the mass of data that was collected, the Air Force got zero information. In the Mystery League, the UFOs were still ahead. Although the majority of the UFO activity during the last half of 1955 and early 1956 centered in the Cincinnati area, there were other good reports. Near Banning, California, on November 25, 1955, Gene Miller, manager of the Banning Municipal Airport, and Dr. Leslie Ward, a physician, were paced by a globe of white light which suddenly backed up in mid-air while in Miller's airplane. It was the same old story. Miller was an experienced pilot, a former Air Force instructor, and air freight pilot with several thousand hours flying time. Commercial pilots came in for more than their share of the sightings in 1956. On January 22, UFO investigators talked to the crew of a Pan-American airliner. That night, at 8.30 p.m., the Houston to Miami DC-7B had been a beam of New Orleans, out over the Gulf of Mexico. There was a partial moon shining through small wisps of high cirrus clouds, but generally it was a clear night. The captain of the flight was back in the cabin chatting with the passengers. The co-pilot and engineer were alone on the flight deck. The engineer had moved up from his control panel and was sitting beside the co-pilot. At 8.30, it was time for a radio position report, and the co-pilot, Tom Tompkins, leaned down to set up a new frequency on the radio controls. Robert Muller, the engineer, was on watch for other aircraft. It was 10, maybe 20 seconds after Tompkins leaned down that Mueller just barely perceived a pinpoint of moving light off to his right. Even before his thought process could tell him it might be another airplane, the light began to grow in size. Within a short six seconds, it streaked across the nose of the airliner, coming out of the gulf and disappearing inland over Mississippi or Alabama. Tompkins, the co-pilot, never saw it because Mueller was too astounded to even utter a sound. But Mueller had a good look. The body of the object was shaped like a bullet and gave off a pale luminescent blue glow. The stubby tail, or exhaust, was marked by spurts of yellow flame or light. The size? Mueller, like any experienced observer, had no idea since he didn't know how far away it was. But it was big. One sentence dangling at the bottom of the report was one I'd seen many, many times before. Mr. Mueller was a complete skeptic regarding UFO reports. During 1956, there was a rumor, I heard it many times, that the Air Force had entered into a grand conspiracy with the U.S. news media to stamp out the UFO. The common people of the world, the rumor had it, were not yet psychologically conditioned to learn that we had been visited by superior beings. By not ever mentioning the words unidentified flying object, the public would forget and go on their merry, stupid way. I heard this rumor so often, in fact, that I began to wonder myself. But a few dollars invested in martinis for old buddies in the Kitty Hawk room of the Biltmore Hotel in Dayton, or the men's bar in the Statler Hotel in Washington, produces a lot of straight and reliable information, much better than you get through official channels. There was no silence order, I learned, only the same old routine. If the files at ATIC were opened to the public, it would take a staff of a dozen people to handle all the inquiries. Secondly, many of the inquiries come from saucer screwballs, and these people are like a hypochondriac at the doctor's. 
Nothing will make them believe the diagnosis unless it is what they came in to hear. And there are plenty of saucer screwballs. One officer summed it up neatly when he told me, It isn't the UFOs that give us the trouble, it's the people. As a double check, I called several newspaper editors the other day and asked, Why don't you print more UFO stories? The answers were simple. It's the old dog bites man bit. 99% have no news value anymore. On May 10, 1956, the man bit the dog. A string of UFO sightings in Pueblo, Colorado, hit the front pages of newspapers across the United States. Starting on the night of May 5th, for six nights, the citizens of Pueblo, including the Ground Observer Corps, saw UFOs zip over their community. As usual, there were various descriptions, but everyone agreed they'd never seen anything like it before. On the sixth night, the Air Force sent in an investigator, and he saw them. Between the hours of 9 p.m. and midnight, he saw six groups of triangular-shaped objects that glowed with a dull fluorescence, faint but bright enough to see. They passed from horizon to horizon in six seconds. The next day, this investigator was called back to Colorado Springs, his base, and a fresh team was sent to Pueblo. The man really chomped down on the dog in July, and the UFO really made headlines. Maybe it was because a fellow newspaper editor was involved, along with the Kansas Highway Patrol, the Navy and the Air Force. Or maybe it was simply because it was a good UFO sighting. About the time Miss Iowa was being judged Miss USA in the 1956 Miss Universe pageant at Long Beach, the city editor of Arkansas City Daily Traveler and a trooper of the Kansas State Highway Patrol were sitting in a patrol cruiser in Arkansas City. It was a hot and muggy night. Occasionally, the radio in the cruiser would come to life. An accident near Salina, a drunk driving south from Topeka, another accident near Wichita. But generally, south-central Kansas was dead. The newspaper editor was about ready to go home, it was 10 o'clock, when the small talk he and the trooper had been making was brought to an abrupt finale by three high-pitched beeps from the cruiser's radio. An important all-cars bulletin was coming. Twenty-five years as a newspaperman had trained the editor to always be on the alert for a story, so he reached down and turned up the volume. Within seconds, he had his story. The Hutchinson Naval Air Station is picking up an unidentified target on their radar, the voice of the dispatcher said, with as much of an excited tone as a police dispatcher can have. Take a look. Then the dispatcher went on to say that the target was moving in a semicircular area that reached out from 50 to 75 miles east of Hutchinson. A B-47 from McConnell Air Force Base at Wichita was in the area, searching. The last fix on the object showed it to be near Emporia in Marion County. The two men in the patrol cruiser looked at each other for a second or two. Like all newspaper editors, this man had had his belly full of flying saucer reports. But this was a little different. Let's go out and look, he said fully doubting that they would see anything. They drove to a hill in the north part of the city where they could get a good view of the sky and parked. In a few minutes, an Arkansas City police car joined them. It was a clear night except for a few wispy clouds scattered across the north sky. They waited, they looked, and they saw. Shortly before midnight, off to the north, appeared a brilliantly lighted, teardrop-shaped blob of light. Prongs or streams of bright light sprayed downward from the blob toward the earth. It was big, about the size of a 200-watt light bulb. As the group of men silently watched, 
The weird light continued to drift, and for many minutes it moved vertically and horizontally over a wide area of the sky. Then it faded away. As one of the men later told me, I was glad to see it go. I was pooped. The next morning, literally hundreds of people spent hours conjecturing and describing. After all these years of talk, they'd actually seen one. Several photos, showing the big blob of light, were shown around, and two fishermen readily admitted they'd packed up their poles and tackle boxes and headed home when they saw it. Editor Coyne summed up the feeling of hundreds of Kansans when he said, I have tended to discount the stories about flying objects, but, brother, I am now a believer. What was it? First of all, it was confusion. Early the next morning, Air Force investigators flooded the area asking the questions. What size was it in comparison to a key or dime? Would it compare in size to a light bulb? Was there any noise? As soon as they left, the military tersely announced that no radar had picked up any target and no B-47s had been sent out. Then they pulled the plugs on the incoming phone lines. The confusion mounted when newsmen tapped their private sources and learned that a B-47 had been sent into the area. A few days later, the Air Force told the Kansans what they'd seen. The reflection from burning waste gas torches in a local oil field. This was greeted with the Kansan version of the Bronx Cheer. 1956 was a big year for Project Blue Book. According to an old friend, Captain George Gregory, who was then Chief of Blue Book, they received 778 reports, and through a lot of sleepless nights they were able to solve 97.8% of them. Only 17 remained unknowns. Digging through the reports for 1956, Outside of the ones already mentioned, there were few real good ones. In Banning, California, Ground Observer Corps spotters watched a balloon-like object make three rectangular circuits around the town. In Plymouth, New Hampshire, two GOC spotters reported a bright yellow object which left a trail, similar to a jet, moving slowly at a very high altitude. At Rosebury, Oregon, state police received many reports of funny green and red lights moving slowly around a television transmitter tower. And in Hartford, Connecticut, two amateur astronomers, looking at Saturn through a four-inch telescope, were distracted by a bright light. Turning their telescope on it, they observed a large, whitish-yellow light, shaped like a ten-gallon hat. Many other people evidently saw the same UFO because the local newspaper said reports have been pouring in. In Miami, a Pan American Airlines radar operator tracked a UFO at speeds up to 4,000 miles an hour. Five of his skeptical fellow radar operators watched and were confirmed. At Moneymore, Northern Ireland, a level-headed and God-fearing citizen and his wife captured an 18-inch saucer by putting a headlock on it. They started to the local police station, but put the saucer down to climb over a hedge, and it went whirling off to the hinterlands of space. The 27th Air Defense Division that guards the vast aircraft and missile centers of Southern California was alerted on the night of September 9th. In rapid succession, a Western Airlines pilot making an approach to Los Angeles International Airport, the Ground Observer Corps, and numerous Los Angeles citizens called in a white light moving slowly across the Los Angeles Basin. When the big defense radars on San Clemente Island picked up an unknown target in the same area that the light was being reported, Two F-89 jet interceptors were scrambled but saw nothing. A few days later, investigators learned 
that a $27.65 weather balloon had caused the many thousand dollars worth of excitement. The matter of scrambling interceptors has been a sore point with the UFO business for a long time. Many people believe that the mere fact the Air Force will send up two, three, or even four aircraft that cost $2,000 an hour to fly is proof positive that the Air Force doesn't believe its own story that UFOs don't exist. The official answer you'll get if you ask the Air Force is that they scramble against any unknown target as a matter of defense. But over coffee you get a different answer. They write the UFO scrambles off as training cost. Each pilot has to get so much flying time and simulating intercepts against an unidentified light is more interesting than merely burning holes in the air. If appropriations are ever cut to the point where training must be curtailed, and heaven forbid, there will be no more scrambles after flying saucers. And the colonel who told me this was emphatic. The year 1957 was heralded in by a startling announcement which ended a long dry spell of UFO news. At a press conference in Washington, D.C., retired Admiral Delmer S. Farney made a statement. Newspapers across the country carried it complete, or in part, and people read the statement with interest because Admiral Farney is well known as a sensible and knowledgeable man. He had fought for and built up the Navy's guided missile program back in the days when people who talked of ballistic missiles and satellites had to fight for their beliefs. First, Admiral Farney announced that a non-profit organization, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, had been established to investigate UFO reports. He would be chairman of the Board of Governors, and his board would consist of such potent names as Retired Vice Admiral R. H. Hillencotter, for two years the director of the super-secret Central Intelligence Agency, retired Lieutenant General P. A. Delval, ex-commanding general of the famous 1st Marine Division, retired Rear Admiral Herbert B. Knowles, noted submariner of World War II. Then Admiral Farney read a statement regarding the policies of NICAP. It was as follows. Reliable reports indicate that there are objects coming into our atmosphere at very high speeds. No agency in this country or Russia is able to duplicate at this time the speeds and accelerations which radars and observers indicate these flying objects are able to achieve. There are signs that an intelligence directs these objects because of the way they fly. The way they change position in formations would indicate that their motion is directed. The Air Force is collecting factual data on which to base an opinion, but time is required to sift and correlate the material. As long as such unidentified objects continue to navigate through the Earth's atmosphere, there is an urgent need to know the facts. Many observers have ceased to report their findings to the Air Force because of the seeming frustration, that is, all information going in and none coming out. It is in this area that NICAP may find its greatest mission. We are in a position to screen independently all UFO information coming in from our filter groups. General Albert C. Wedemeyer will serve the committee as evaluations advisor and complete analyses will be arranged through leading scientists. After careful evaluation, we shall release our findings to the public. Donald Kehoe, a retired Marine Corps major and author of three top-seller UFO books, was appointed director. The mere fact that another civilian UFO investigative group was being born was neither news nor UFO history because, 
Since 1947, well over a hundred such organizations had been formed. Many still exist. Many flopped. But none deserve the niche in UFO history that does NICAP. NICAP had power and it raised a storm that took months to calm down. NICAP got off to a fast start. Dues were pegged at $7.50 a year, which included a subscription to the very interesting magazine, The UFO Investigator, and the operation went into high gear. With such names as Farney, Wedemeyer, Hillencotter, Duvall, and Knowles for prestige, and Kehoe for intrigue, the saucer fans all over the United States packaged up their 750 and mailed it to headquarters. Each, in turn, became a listening post and an investigator. Kehoe set up a panel of special advisors, all saucer fans, to impartially evaluate the UFO reports ferreted out by the listening posts, based on facts uncovered by the investigators. Even though the leading scientists, Farney mentioned in his statement never materialized, NICAP was cocked, primed, and ready. To get things off to a gala start, Kehoe, as director of NICAP, wrote to the Air Force and set out NICAP's eight-point plan. In essence, this plan suggested, some say demanded, that the Air Force let NICAP ride herd on Project Blue Book. First of all, NICAP wanted its panel of special advisors to review and concur with all of the conclusions on the thousands of UFO reports that the Air Force had in its files. This went over like a worm in the punch bowl. First of all, the Air Force didn't feel it was necessary to review its files. Secondly, they knew NICAP. If every balloon, planet, airplane, and bird that caused a UFO report hadn't been captured and a signed confession wrung out, the UFO would be a visitor from outer space. The Air Force decided to ignore NICAP. But NICAP wouldn't be ignored. They bombarded everyone from the Secretary of the Air Force on down with telephone calls, telegrams, and letters. Still, the Air Force remained silent. Then, NICAP headquarters called in the troops and members from all corners of the nation cut loose. The barrage of mail broke the logjam, and just enough information to constitute an answer dribbled out of the office of the Secretary of the Air Force. But this didn't satisfy Kehoe or his UFO-hungry NICAPians. They wanted blood, and that blood had to taste like spaceships, or they wouldn't be happy. The cudgel they picked up next was powerful. The Air Force had said that there was nothing classified about Project Blue Book yet. NICAP hadn't seen every blessed scrap of paper in the Air Force UFO files. This was unwarranted censorship. While Congress was right in the middle of such important and crucial problems as foreign policy, atomic disarmament, racketeering, integration, and a dozen and one other problems, NICAP began to bedevil every senator and representative who was polite enough to listen. It's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease and, in November 1957, the United States Senate Committee on Government Operations began an inquiry concerning UFOs. I gave my testimony and so did others who had been associated with Project Blue Book. A few weeks later, the inquiry was dropped, but NICAP had made its name. Of all the thorns that have been pounded into the UFO side of the Air Force, NICAP drove theirs the deepest. In the midst of all this mess, Admiral Farney, General Wedemeyer, and General Duvall politely and quietly resigned from NICAP's Board of Governors. Neither the loss of these famous names nor the defeat at the hands of the Air Force has stopped NICAP. They continue to forge ahead, undaunted. In many UFO incidents, 
they have actually uncovered additional and sometimes interesting information. NICAP director Don Kehoe has taken a beating, being accused of profiteering, trying to make headlines, and other minor social crimes. But personally, I doubt this. Kehoe is simply convinced that UFOs are from outer space, and he's a dedicated man. While the big NICAP Air Force battle was going on, the UFOs were not waiting to see who won. They were still flying. At Ellington Air Force Base, Texas, a Ground Observer Corps team spotted a UFO and passed it on to a radar crew. Although the radar crew couldn't pick it up on their sets, they saw it visually. The lieutenant in charge told investigators how it crossed from horizon to horizon in 45 seconds. On March 9, several passengers on a New York to San Juan Puerto Rico airliner were injured when the pilot pulled the big DC-6 up sharply to miss a large greenish-white clearly circular-shaped object which was on a collision course with the plane. The pilots of several other airliners in the same airway confirmed the sighting. Two weeks later, jet interceptors were scrambled over Los Angeles to look for a UFO. According to the records, the first report of the brilliant and mysterious flashing red light came from a man in the east part of Pasadena, but his report was quickly lost in the shuffle as more and more calls began to come in. As the flashing light crossed the Los Angeles basin from southeast to northwest, hundreds of people saw it. Traffic was tied up on the Rose Parade famous Colorado Boulevard as drivers stopped their cars to get out and look. As it neared the Air Defense Command Filter Center in Pasadena, the Filter Center personnel, those that could be spared, went out and looked. They saw it. Police switchboards lit up a solid red as it crossed the San Gabriel Valley. Near midnight, a CAA radar picked up unidentified targets near the Oxnard Air Force Base at Oxnard, California, northwest of Los Angeles. And at almost that identical time, people on the airbase saw the light. This did it, and two powerful jets, equipped with all-weather radar, came screaming into the area. But it was the same old story. No contact. The UFO was gone. The Midwest was visited on the morning of May 23rd, when five observers in Kansas City saw four silver disc-shaped objects flying in formation at extremely high speed. At one point during their flight, two of the objects broke formation and veered off, but soon rejoined. It took the objects only four minutes to cross the sky. There were other reports during the first half of 1957, 250 of them to be exact, and many could be classified as good, but they were nothing compared to those that were to come. On November 3, 1957, a rash of sightings broke out in Texas, and they had a brand new twist. To do things upright, the powers that guide the UFO picked the town of Leveland, only 27 miles west of Lubbock, the home of the now-traditional Lubbock Lights. It was with a tug of nostalgia that I read about these reports, because five years before, almost to the day, Lubbock had plunged the Air Force and me into the UFO mystery on a grand scale. According to the best interpretation of the maze of conflicting stories, facts and rumors about these famous sightings, the only positive fact is that there were scattered storm clouds across West Texas on the night of November 4, 1957. This was unusual for November, and everyone in the community was just a little edgy. It was early in the evening, at least early for West Texas on a Saturday night, when Pedro Sacedo, a farm worker, and his friend Joe Salaz started out in Sacedo's truck toward Petite, 
10 miles northwest of Leveland. They had just turned off State Highway 116 and were heading north on a country road when the two men saw a flash of light in an adjacent field. Sasedo, a Korean War veteran, and Salaz didn't pay much attention to the light at first. They only noticed that it was coming closer. It seemed to be paralleling us and edging a little closer all the time, Sasedo later recalled. Still, neither man paid any attention to the light. They drove on, Sasedo watching the road and Salaz talking. Then it hit. The first signal of something wrong was when the truck's headlights went out. Then the engine stopped. Before Sasedo could hit the starter again, he glanced over his left shoulder. A huge ball of fire was rapidly drifting toward the truck. Without a second's hesitation, Sasedo did what the Korean War had taught him to do when in doubt. He shoved open the car door and hit the dirt. Salaz just sat. The thing passed directly over my truck with a great sound and rush of wind, Sasedo later told County Sheriff Weir Clem. After he'd started his truck and had driven back to Leveland, it sounded like thunder and my truck rocked from the blast. I felt a lot of heat. The thing, which disappeared across the prairie, looked like a fiery tornado. Five years before and a little east of where Sasedo and Salaz were buzzed, I had talked to two women who described almost an identical UFO, and it remains unknown to this day. In Leveland, the two men's story would have been enough to keep Sheriff Clem busy for the rest of the night, but between the hours of 8.15 p.m. and midnight on the 2nd, the Leveland Thing struck five more times. James D. Long, a Waco truck driver, came upon it four miles west of Leveland and fainted as it roared over his truck. Ronald Martin, another truck driver, was stopped east of Leveland, as was Newell Wright, a Texas Tech student. Jim Wheeler, Jose Alvarez, and Frank Williams added their stories to the melee. All of those who had been attacked told Sheriff Clem a similar story. The thing was shaped something like an egg standing on end. It was fiery red, more like a red neon light. It was about 200 feet long and was about 200 feet in the air. When it came close to cars, the engines would stop and the lights would go out. Everyone, Sheriff Clem said, seemed very excited. That night, everyone in West Texas saw UFOs. Sheriff Clem saw a brilliant light in the distance. Highway Patrolman Lee Hargrove and Floyd Cavan reported similar brilliant lights at the same time, but from a different location. The control tower operators at the Amarillo Airport, to the north, saw a blue gaseous object which moved swiftly and left an amber trail. There were dozens more. It was a memorable Saturday night in Leveland, but unbeknown to Sheriff Clem or the residents of West Texas, they weren't alone on the visitor's list. At 2.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, only a few hours after the thing raised havoc around Leveland, an Army military police patrol was cruising the super-secret White Sands Proving Ground in New Mexico. Here is their report as they gave it to Air Force UFO investigators. At approximately 0230, 3 November 1957, Source, together with PFC, blank, were on a routine patrol of the uprange area of the White Sands Proving Ground when Source noticed a very bright object high in the sky. This object slowly descended to an altitude estimated to be approximately 50 yards, where it remained motionless for about three minutes. Then it descended to the ground where the light went out. The object was not blurred or fuzzy, emitted no vapor or smoke. The object was in view for about 10 minutes, 
and source estimated that it was approximately two or three miles away. It was estimated to be between 75 and 100 yards in diameter and shaped like an egg. Source stated that it was as large as a grapefruit held at arm's length. The weather was cold, drizzling, and windy, and Source stated no stars were visible. After the light went out, Source and PFC Blank continued north to the stallion site camp and reported the incident to the sergeant of the guard who returned to that area but failed to find anything. The flap was on. On Monday the 4th, the Leveland thing struck again near White Sands Proving Ground. James Stokes, a 20-year Navy veteran and an electronics engineer, had the engine of his new Mercury stopped as a brilliant egg-shaped object made a pass at the highway. As it went over, Stokes said, it felt like the radiation of a giant sun lamp. Stokes said there were ten other carloads of people stopped, but if this is true, no one ever found out who they were. The Air Force wrote off the Stokes story as hoax, presumably suggested by the Leveland, Texas reports. Maybe the Air Force didn't believe James Stokes, but when the Coast Guard cutter Seabago radioed in their report from the Gulf of Mexico, wheels began to turn fast. On Tuesday morning, the 5th, the Seabago was about 200 miles south of the mouth of the Mississippi River on a northerly heading. At 5.10 a.m., her radar picked up a target off to the left at a distance of about 14 miles. This was really nothing unusual because they were under heavily traveled air lanes. The early morning watch is always rough, and as the small group of officers and men in the Combat Information Center quietly watched the target, with a noticeable lack of enthusiasm, it moved south, made a turn, and headed back to the north again. A few of the men noticed that the turn looked a little different, but this early in the morning they didn't give it much thought. At 5.14 the target went off the scope to the north. At 5.16 it was back, and the lassitude was instantly gone. Now the target was 22 miles south of the ship. No one in the CIC had to draw a picture. Something in two minutes had disappeared off the scope to the north, made a big swing around the ship, out of radar range, and had swung in from the south. Word went up to the lookouts. They tensed up and began to scan the sky. The radar contacts continued. This second contact, south of the ship, was held for two full minutes as the target moved out from 22 to 55 miles. Then it faded. At 5.20, the target was back, but now it was north of the ship again, and it was hovering. Again, the lookouts were called. Could they see anything now? Their no answers didn't hold for long, because seconds later their terse reports began to come into the CIC. A brilliant light, like a planet, was streaking across the northwest sky about 30 degrees above the horizon. Unfortunately, the radar had lost contact for a moment when the visual report came in. At 5.37, the target disappeared from the scopes and was gone for good. The Seabago case was ended, but the UFOs continued to fly. Reports continued to come into the Air Force, and a lot of investigators lost a lot of sleep. The next day at 3.50 p.m., the CO of an Air Force weather detachment at Long Beach, California, and 12 airmen watched six saucer-shaped UFOs streak along under the bases of a 7,000-foot-high cloud deck. On the same day, also in Long Beach, officers and men at the Los Alamitos Naval Air Station saw UFOs almost continuously, 
between the hours of 6.05 and 7.25 p.m. Long Beach police reported well over 100 calls during this same period. During November and December of 1957, it was a situation of you named the city and there was a UFO report from there. Trying to sift them out and put them in a book would be like sorting out a plateful of spaghetti. And if you succeeded, you would have a document the size of the New York City telephone directory. Most of the reports were explained. The Leveland, Texas sightings were written off as St. Elmo's Fire. The military police at the White Sands Proving Ground saw the moon through broken clouds and the crew of the Coast Guard ship Seabago were actually tracking several separate aircraft. The 1957 flap was as great as the previous record-breaking 1952 flap. During 1957, the Air Force received 1,178 UFO reports. Of these, only 20 were placed on the unknown list. In comparison to 1957, the first months of 1958 were a doldrums. Reports drifted in at a leisurely pace, and the Air Force UFO investigating teams, blooded during the avalanche of 1957, picked off solutions like knocking off clay pipes in a shooting gallery. In Los Angeles, a few clear nights drove the Air Defense Command nuts. People could actually see the sky and the sight of so many stars frightened them. Unusual atmospherics in Georgia made stars jump and radars go crazy, and a balloon, hanging over Chicago at dusk, cost the taxpayers another several thousand dollars, but the pilots made their flight pay. A statement by Dr. Carl Jung, renowned Swiss psychologist, was widely publicized in July 1958. Dr. Jung was quoted as saying, in a letter to a U.S. saucer club, UFOs are real. When Dr. Jung read what he was supposed to have written, the Alps rang with screams of misquote. No one got excited until the early morning of September 29th. Shortly before dawn on that day, a confusing mess of reports began to pour into the Air Force. Some came from the Washington, D.C. area. People right in NICAP's backyard told of seeing a large, round, fiery object shoot across the sky from southeast to northwest. A few excited observers, all from the country northwest of Washington, had seen it land, and even as they telephoned in their reports, they could see it glowing behind a neighbor's barn. Other reports, also of a huge, round, fiery object, came in from such places as Pittsburgh, Somerset, and Bedford, all in Pennsylvania, and Hagerstown and Frederick in Maryland. To add to the confusion, people in Pennsylvania reported seeing three objects flying in formation. When the dust settled, Air Force investigators took the first step in the solution of any UFO report. They plotted the sightings on a map and collated the directions of flight, descriptions, and times of observations. It was obvious that the object had moved along a line between Washington, D.C. and Pittsburgh. It was traveling about 7,000 miles an hour, and everyone had obviously seen the same object. By the time it had passed into Pennsylvania, it had split into three objects. But the hooker was the reported landings northeast of Washington. Too many people had reported a glow on the ground to write this factor off, even though an investigator, dispatched to the scene shortly after dawn, had found nothing in the way of evidence. One possibility was that some unknown object had streaked across the sky, landed, and then took off again. Could be, but it wasn't. The next night, the case broke. The glow from the landing was a bright floodlight on a barn. 
No one had ever really noticed it before until the object passed nearby. A few days later, the object itself was identified. From the many identical descriptions, Project Blue Book's astrophysicist pinned it down as a large meteor. The meteor had broken up near the end of its flight to produce the illusion of three objects flying in formation. Of all the 590 UFO reports the Air Force received in 1957, probably the weirdest was solved before it was ever reported. About 4 o'clock on the afternoon of October 2, 1958, three men were standing in a group talking outside a tungsten mill at Danby, California, right in the heart of the Mojave Desert. The men had been talking for about five minutes when one of them, who happened to be facing the northwest, stopped right in the middle of a sentence and pointed. The other two men looked and to their astonishment saw a brilliant glow of light. It was so close to the horizon that it was difficult to tell if it was on the horizon or in the air just above it. At first the men ignored the light, but as it persisted they became more interested. They'd all heard flying saucer stories and, they later admitted, this possibility entered their minds. As they watched, they speculated. It could be something natural, but all of them had been around this area for months, and they'd never seen this light before. About the time they decided to get a telescope and take a closer look, the light suddenly faded. All the next day, the men kept glancing off toward the northwest as they worked, but the clear blue sky was blank. Then at 4 p.m., the light was back. This time they had a telescope. All the men took turns looking at the object and all agreed that it was about 15 feet long, 5 feet high, and solid. It looked like the sun reflecting off shiny metal. It was about 4 miles away, they estimated, and almost exactly on the horizon. Now the men's curiosity was thoroughly wetted. Martian spaceship or whatever, they were going after it. But a several-hour search of the area produced nothing. And as soon as they left the mill, they lost sight of the object. Darkness brought the search to a halt. The next day at 4 p.m., a crowd had gathered and the UFO kept its appointment. Again, the men studied the object and tension ran high. Someone had resurrected the stories of UFOs landing in the desert. At the time, they'd sounded absurd, but now, standing there looking at a UFO, it was different. A party of men were all ready to jeep out into the desert to make another search when one of them made a discovery. There were guy wires coming out of the UFO and running down into the trees. Other people looked, and then the solution hit like a fireball. Exactly in line with the UFO and ten miles away, not four, was a set of antennas for the California State Highway Patrol radio. The sun's rays were reflecting from these antennas, They'd never seen this before because on only a few days during the year was the sun at exactly the right angle to produce the reflection. The men were right. In a few days, the Danby UFO left and it never came back. 1958 was not a record year for UFOs. The 590 reports received didn't stack up to the 1,178 for 1957, or the 778 for 1956, or the 918 for 1952. But a new record was set when the percentage of unknowns was pared down to a new low. During 1958, only 9 out of 10 of 1% of the reports, or five reports, were classified as unknowns. More manpower, better techniques, and just plain old experience has allowed the Air Force to continually lower the percentage of unknowns from 20% while I was in charge of Project Blue Book to less than 1% today. 
No story of the UFO would be complete without describing one of these unknowns. So here's one exactly as it came out of the Project Blue Book files. On 31st October 1958, this center received a TWX reporting a UFO near Lock Raven Dam. A request for a detailed investigation was sent to the nearest Air Force base. The following is a summary of the incident and subsequent investigation. Two civilians were driving around near Lock Raven Dam on the evening of 26 October 1958 when they rounded a curve about 200 to 300 yards from a bridge, they saw what appeared to be a large, flat, egg-shaped object hovering about 100 to 150 feet above the bridge superstructure. They slowed their car, and when they got to within 75 or 80 feet of the bridge, their engine quit and their lights went out. The driver immediately stepped on the brakes and stopped the car. Attempts were made to start the car, and when this was unsuccessful, they became frightened and got out of the car. They put the car between them and the object and watched for approximately 30 to 45 seconds. The object then seemed to flash a brilliant white light, and both men felt heat on their faces. Then there was heard a loud noise, and the object began rising vertically. The object became very bright while rising, and its shape could not be seen as it rose. It disappeared in 5 to 10 seconds. After the object disappeared, the car was started, and they turned it around and drove to where a phone was located and contacted the Towson Police Department. Two patrolmen were sent to meet them. The two men told the patrolmen of their experience. The witnesses then noticed a burning sensation on their faces and became concerned about possible radiation burns. They went to a Baltimore hospital for an examination. Both witnesses were advised by the doctor that they had no reason for concern. An extensive investigation was made concerning this incident. However, no valid conclusion could be made as to the possible nature of the sighting and it remains unidentified. So ended 1958, and in its final tally of sightings for the year, Project Blue Book added a new space-age touch. Earth satellites had accounted for 11 UFO reports. 1959 came in with a good one. We used to call these reports ground-air visual radar sightings, and they make interesting reading. At Duluth, Minnesota, in March, it's dark by 5 o'clock in the evening. It's cold. The temperature hovers around zero, and it's so clear, you have a feeling you can almost reach up and touch the stars. It was this kind of a night on March 13, 1959, and as the officers and men of the Air Defense Command Fighter Squadron at the Duluth Municipal Airport moved, they shuffled along slowly, because the heavy parkas and arctic clothing they wore were heavy. Then came the UFO report and things speeded up. At 5.20 p.m. exactly, the operations officer noted the time, word came in over the comm line that someone had sighted an unidentified flying object off to the north. Word flashed around the squadron, and, as people rushed out of buildings to look, they were joined by those already outside. And there it was, big, round, and bright, and it was moving at high speed. Some observers thought it was greenish, others reddish, but it was something and it was there. The bearing was 300 degrees from the base. It was an awesome sight, and it became even more awesome when a quick call to an adjacent radar site brought back the word that they had just picked up a target on a bearing of 300 degrees from the air base. They were tracking it and taking scope photos. In the alert hangar, the two pilots standing the alert had been listening to a running account of the sighting, so when the scramble bell rang, they took off for their airplanes like a couple of sprinters. As the two big alert hangar doors swung up, 
the whining screech of the jet starters, followed by thunder of the engines, filled the airfield. The atmosphere around the Duluth Municipal Airport was closely akin to Santa Anita the instant the starting gates open. I've been around when jet interceptors scramble, and you can twang the tension with your finger. As the people on the ground watched, they could first see the flame of the jet's afterburner disappear into the night. Then the jet's navigation lights faded out on a bearing of 300 degrees. At the radar site, they still had the target, and there were many excited people watching the big pale orange scopes as two little bright points of light began to close on a bigger blob of light. Then the pilots gave the tally-ho. They were in visual contact, but the tally-ho had no more been given than the big blob of light on the target began to pull away from the fighters and was soon off the scope. The pilots kept visual contact, though, and the radio provided the details of the chase to the now-blind crew in the radar room. The two jets bored north, with afterburner on, and the needles on their Mach meters passed the 1.0 mark, but still the UFO was just as far away as it had ever been. The chase went on for a few minutes more before the pilots pulled their throttles back into the crew's position, turned, and came home. Even before they landed, the people at the airbase saw the big, round, and bright UFO rapidly begin to fade and then it was gone. So ended the glamour and the dog work began. Each man who had seen the UFO visually was carefully interrogated. Weather reports were collected. Radar scope photos were developed. The two pilots received special attention. The exact bearing of the UFO was measured, and 300 degrees magnetic was correct. The bundle of data was packed up and sent to Project Blue Book. The panel of experts convened. First, the radar scope photos were examined. Those targets could be interference from other radars, said the radar expert, and he mentally ticked off a dozen and one other similar cases of known interference. The weather data and locations and frequencies of other radars were checked out. Beyond doubt, it was interference from another radar that caused the target. Now the visual sighting. Balloon? No, the fighters could have caught a balloon in seconds. Airplane? Same answer. These jets were the fastest things in the air. Planet or star? Out came the almanacs and the puzzle went to the astrophysicist. Venus was on a bearing of 300 degrees from the Duluth Municipal Airport at 5.20 p.m. on March 23rd. But Venus was just below the horizon at that time and the observers said the UFO was moving fast. Once again, the weather charts were studied. The atmospheric conditions were such that it was very possible that due to refraction, Venus would have been visible just on the horizon. The fact that the UFO faded so fast would bear this out because the conditions for such refraction are critical and a slight change in atmospheric conditions could easily have caused the planet to disappear. The speed, a common illusion, Further interrogation of the observers showed it had never moved. So the history of the UFO is almost brought up to date. And that's the end of Chapter 18. Tune in next time for Chapter 19. Off they go into the wild blue yonder. If you enjoyed the show, you can really help us out by subscribing and giving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts. And happy holidays!